The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of my sermon today, uh, tonight, is That You May Know. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 49. And tonight, we are going to, we are going to simply open the Word of God, and we are going to read all 36 verses. And we are just going to ask the Lord to speak to us plainly and profoundly through his pure and eternal word. And I will attempt, by the grace of God, to the best of my ability, uh, to share uh, some things that the Lord has, um, what I believe the Lord has impressed upon my heart um, as I've studied this scripture, Luke 24, uh, verses 13 through 49. Um, so I'm just going to pray really quick. Father, we just want to, we want to acknowledge that you are so good. Lord, when we say so good, our, our brains try to understand what we mean when we say that. But Lord, um, your word tells us that, that the Holy Spirit actually prays for us, that when our words cannot utter what they ought to utter, that your Holy Spirit lifts up our words and in a way translates them uh, in, in an effective and in an accurate way. And so, Father, when we say that you are so good, we acknowledge and understand that we don't truly understand the fullness of your goodness. And so, Father, we, we humbly come before you and acknowledge that you are good to the fullest extent possible. Lord, we want to thank you above all things for your son, Jesus Christ, and for his death and his resurrection, Lord. Lord, we are going to be looking at the resurrection of your son, as you know, and Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you, Lord, Holy Spirit, would Come and illuminate your word to us so that we may know you, so that our faith might be built for your purposes and for your glory. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we, we humbly ask all of these things in the powerful and in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So what was just blowing my mind as we were worshiping, and this was not going to be part of my sermon, but it was within the thoughts and my study material when Kayla, the very last song, Our, Our Hearts Burning, um, do you understand that the word Emmaus actually means warm springs or hot springs. And what's fascinating, and again, I was not planning on sharing this, and so I will try to make this quick so I can get through what I want to share, that the only time the word Emmaus, the road to Emmaus, sorry, let me back up. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about Luke 24, 13 to 49, which is the story of the road to Emmaus. And so Jesus has risen from the dead, 
and there are two disciples that are walking. Jesus appears to them, and I don't want to give it all away, but this story is the road to Emmaus. And the reason why I'm bringing this up right now about the word Emmaus is because Kayla at the end was singing, and even her prayer at the end was so, was so appropriate. The word Emmaus means hot springs or warm springs, and it is the, the only time the word Emmaus is ever used in the entire Bible is actually right here in Luke chapter 24, okay? But that's not the crazy part. The crazy part is that the other time that the word Emmaus is found in history is um, within the, the silent years, those 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a battle um, by the Maccabees called the Battle of Emmaus. And what is so, I, I, I do hope that my words can convey how incredible this is, but the Battle of Emmaus was a battle in which the Maccabeans did win, okay? However, we know from reading the New Testament that although they had won that battle, they were still under Roman occupation by the time Christ was born and lived, okay? Now, what's fascinating about this is that the Maccabean revolt and all, all of the Jewish history, for the most part, was really about during, you know, kind of after the, the Grecian and during the Roman Empire, was really about to liberate the nation of Israel from an oppressor, right? That was really what the disciples were looking for and looking at and trying to see any movement of Christ in that way. And we're gonna, we're gonna see that. But what's so fascinating about this story is that that battle represented almost entirely the perspective that falls so short of what the Messiah really came to do. We see it in the New Testament when Peter actually rebukes Jesus, when Jesus says, I'm gonna suffer and die and rise, and Peter rebukes him, takes him privately, thank goodness, and rebukes him, and what does Jesus say? Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Like one of the most harsh words that we have ever seen come out of the mouth of Jesus to his own disciples. And the reason why I believe that Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, is because Peter was tempting Jesus in the same way that Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Do we remember? Satan came to Jesus and among other things said, I will show you and give you all of the kingdoms of the world. Now, whether or not Satan could have actually delivered on that promise I have my doubts, but we'll never know. But had he had the ability to deliver on that promise in exchange for Jesus worshiping him, Jesus may have attempted to at least firstly restore having ownership of all the kingdoms, which he already does, but again, assuming that Satan could have delivered on this, perhaps Jesus would have restored the nation of Israel. But what did Jesus say? He said, do not tempt the Lord thy God. He rebuked Satan, and Satan fled. And so what I see in the life of Jesus, being fully man and fully God, particularly in his humanity, that people all around him, even Satan himself, tempted him to step out of line. Jesus even 
in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Father, if there be any other way to accomplish your will, Father, please let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, not my will, but your will be done. And so the temptation we see for Jesus, and it wasn't really a temptation to him necessarily, but certainly the people around him and Satan himself wanted Jesus to take a shortcut, skip the suffering and go right to glory. And what we're going to see here in Luke 24, 13 to 49, is Jesus actually revealing to his disciples that very fact, that he must suffer and die before he is glorified. And so let's go ahead and open up to Luke 24, verse 13. And when you understand what Emmaus means in the battle at Emmaus, you can see such a stark contrast between what actually took place at Emmaus in the Bible um, and what other people may remember about Emmaus, especially the Jewish people. So we are going to read this. It's a great story, pretty easy to understand, and I'm reading out of the NKJV. So here we go. Now behold... Two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. Now, really quick, all these things are simply the report of the women saying that Jesus had been resurrected, but they couldn't find his body. So everybody was very confused. And here, these two disciples are on the road to Emmaus discussing these things and many other things, as we'll see when Jesus asks, him, asks them, what things are you, are you discussing? And then he goes on. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, well, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping, here it is, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. And certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early, they astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And this is probably the most climactic verse of this whole story. Verse 27. And beginning at Moses 
and all the prophets, he expounded to them in, catch this, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So this is really the first section. We're going to keep going. Section two, the disciples' eyes opened, physical eyes opened. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated or acted as if he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So that's section two. Now section three, 36 to 49. Now as they said these things, so as the disciples were already in the room with the rest of the disciples, like while they're in the room relaying what had just happened on the road to Emmaus and him being known to them through the breaking of bread, verse 36. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. And said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands, my feet, that it is I myself handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled. Some of yours might say out of amazement. He said to them, knowing that they still didn't believe, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And here it is, similar to verse 27, 45 says, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Okay, so really an amazing, an amazing story. And there are, there are really two main things 
that I'd like to go over with you. And then kind of a, a final a final benefit of these first two things that we get to experience as believers. But before we do that, I just want to kind of give you kind of the introduction, what we're going to cover entirely. And then also, by the way, at the end of my sermon, I have a, a song for you, not that I'm going to play, but that we're going to play on the screen. And then after that, we're going to have communion together. Um, and so if you haven't, um, if you did not get some communion coming on in, that's okay. We have some up here as well. Um, and during that last song, if, if you would like, you can go back and, or come up and, and get some. So as we read, so here, here's really kind of the overview of what we're going to be looking at. As we read the story in Luke 24, we will see, this is very important, Jesus's utmost desire and concern that his disciples would, number one, know and see know and see him in all the scriptures and that his disciples would, number two, know and believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ all to build their faith. It's really, really at, at the end of the day, when you read this scripture, the purpose of all of this was really to go to great lengths to convince them to build their faith in the very real fact that Jesus is in and through the entirety of their family heritage, as they might call the Old Testament. Right? When we read the Old Testament, it's, not, it's like our, it's our spiritual family, but it's, it's not like the Jewish people. Like They would have possibly been able, because of their birth records and their, their talent at doing that, they may have actually been able to read the Old Testament and actually identify certain people, places, last names, family names that were mentioned, and actually know that I come from that family. Like when they read the Old Testament, it was literally like a family heritage and history book that they could read about their very own selves and their families. And in and through all of it, the Messiah was spoken of as needing to suffer as well as conquer. And yet they never saw it. Even in Isaiah 53, Beginning in chapter 42 all the way to 53, there's, there's so much of the, of the suffering servant, and yet they missed it. And so as, so as Jesus approaches the disciples, he does two things. I've reviewed them. He opens their understanding of the scriptures, convincing them, and actually showing them, allowing them to see spiritually and mentally that Jesus was actually spoken of in all the scriptures. It doesn't necessarily mean that every single word is talking about Jesus, because you have to be, you have to look at the Bible and you have to see the context. But we can say that every single word, although maybe not is Jesus or talks about Jesus, we can say that every single spirit-inspired word of God in the Old Testament points to Jesus or helps other scriptures to point to Jesus. Could you imagine the word of God, Jesus, 
teaching the word of God. Jesus, the teacher, is teaching about himself. Could you imagine that? I mean, we've all heard the phrase, you know, no one knows you better than yourself. I mean, think about applying that phrase to Jesus. So he now has the opportunity to actually go through the pages of the Old Testament with two disciples that are downcast, that are sad, that are full of doubt. And you know what? They still didn't even know that it was Jesus who was doing this to them. So interestingly enough, with the two disciples, Jesus actually opens their understanding first and then their eyes to see him physically. However, in the second part of the story, when he's in the room with all the disciples, he actually opens their eyes to see him physically risen first, and then he opens their understanding to comprehend the scriptures. When I read the first part, I thought, oh, there must be something, there must be something here. But then I read that he did the exact opposite later on in the story. So I really have nothing to say about that. Um, but one thing that we can collect from reading this and from understanding that he opened their understanding and that he opened their eyes to see him physically, okay, is that he initiates all of it. He initiates all of it. And may I submit to you tonight that you can find no greater assurance in this entire life and world that we live in than to know that he is the initiator. Think about if you spending eternity with him, not in hell, depended upon you initiating something. The Bible clearly teaches that we love him because he first loved us. It's like the most overwhelmingly humbling and yet comforting and assuring truth in all of the universe is that we can love him. We can have, we, we have the ability to love him because he first loved us. That is the assurance that we have as believers. And it is almost no clearer than in this scripture. Jesus is the one who opened their eyes. Jesus is the one who restrained their eyes in the first place. And when he saw it fit, he said, they'll come off. Boom. And they saw him. Just absolutely amazing. What I want to mention really quick is that how he was made known to them physically, how his body was, was known to them. It was through the breaking of bread. Okay. This four-part sequence that you can see in verse, um, verse 30, okay? He took the bread, he blessed the bread, he broke the bread, and he gave the bread. That may seem very insignificant, but the only, the only other two times in the entire Bible 
that this very specific sequence of take, and not just Jesus, but just anybody, anyone in the Bible, taking the bread, blessing the bread, breaking the bread, and giving the bread is in the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus says and proclaims by feeding them bread that I am the bread of life. I really was the manna in the desert. I am the bread that comes down from heaven, right? And the only other time other than that is, other than right now, is the Lord's Supper, or sorry, the Last Supper. When Jesus took the body and the blood and told his disciples that you will do this in remembrance of me, do this in remembrance of me. And so it was in the breaking of bread that these two disciples were made aware that we are sitting here. We are literally communing, eating with, which is what he did to, perf- to prove later on, remember, that he was physically resurrected, that he, he ate with them. He said, give me, give me something to eat. They gave him some fish and he ate it. With the two disciples, he's eating with them. And while they're communing with him, Jesus takes the veil off their eyes and they physically see him. It's, it's amazing. Now, going to the second part, which was, um, I'm sorry, the first part, which was seeing him in all the scriptures, the song that I'm going to play for you is a song that's called Christ the True and Better. Christ the True and Better is a song written by Keith and Kristen Getty, and it is such a beautifully written song. I want to read one particular quote from one of the reformers from the 1500s talking about seeing Christ in all the scriptures, okay? He, Christ, is Isaac, the beloved son of the father who was offered as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He is Jacob, the watchful shepherd, who has such great care for the sheep which he guards. He is the good and compassionate brother, Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. He is the great sacrificer and bishop, Melchizedek, who has offered an eternal sacrifice once for all. He is the sovereign lawgiver, Moses, writing his law on the tablets of our hearts by his spirit. Got three or four more. He is the faithful captain and guide, Joshua, to lead us to the promised land. He is the victorious and noble King David, bringing by his hand all rebellious power to subjection. He is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. And finally, he is the strong and powerful Samson, who by his death has overwhelmed all his enemies. And they never saw any of that. They never saw any of that until Jesus opened their understanding. So so in, in closing... Here's the amazing thing about these, this example, these two examples, okay? Neither of these groups, the two or the rest, had the New Testament. Neither did they have the Holy Spirit. 
who is the primary illuminator of the word of God. Also, really quick, have you ever thought about the fact in John 20, verse 23, when Jesus, after he had resurrected from the dead, okay, and he, he breathed on them, what did he say? He said, receive the Holy Spirit. So think about this. The physically resurrected, bodily glorified body of Jesus Christ had within it or himself literally the Holy Spirit and his actual breath when breathed upon the disciples, they received the Holy Spirit. In multiple examples in the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of Jesus interchangeably used. But oftentimes, we don't necessarily think often about the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, as the Spirit of Jesus. We're not saying that the Holy Spirit is Jesus. We're not saying that the Father is the Son. What we're saying, what the Bible is saying, is that when Jesus, in his glorified state, breathed upon his disciples, it was then that they received the Holy Spirit. And one of the primary responsibilities of the Holy Spirit is that he would bring to remembrance the things that Jesus said. In John, he says that specifically. He says that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance the things that I have said. And so, he leaves us today with three things. One of those things is the word himself. He is the word become flesh. And we have the word of God. God has preserved the word in our own language, for goodness sakes, by his grace and his love toward us, he has preserved what I would call and what some of us may call the only perfect, tangible thing that we actually have access to. Everything in this world is broken, everything. But he has preserved his written word throughout all of history, and you have it sitting on your lap. The only perfect, tangible thing that exists here on this earth right now. He leaves that with us so that he can say, I will never leave you. Behold, I'm with you till the end of the age. So he leaves us with his word. He leaves us with his own spirit, the Holy Spirit in us. And thirdly, and beautifully, and intimately, he leaves us with Another gift, and that gift is the Lord's Supper. So in closing, I want to just talk a little bit about the Lord's Supper and how beautiful and how sacred the Lord's Supper really is. I'm not going to get into the history, but there is such incredible history about the Lord's Supper. We know that Roman Catholics believe in what's called transubstantiation, which is that the elements, I grew up Roman Catholic from kindergarten to eighth grade. They actually believe that when consecrated, they call it the Eucharist, that the elements, the wine and the bread, the host, literally, physically become the actual, not spiritually, not hypothetically, but actually the body and the blood of Jesus. On the other side of the spectrum, there are a lot of 
churches, kind of more so like in America, Baptists, Maranatha, um, Calvary Chapel. They have this other view that the elements are purely 100% just purely symbolic. And that's, that's pretty much what I believe. However, there, is, there are two other views, actually. I said I wasn't going to talk about this, but here I am talking about it. There are two, there are two views, actually, kind of in between those two, which is very interesting. Luther, Martin Luther, being a Lutheran, uh, or the Lutheran doctrine, is kind of like in between transubstantiation and this, this view that I'm going to talk about right now. So the Reformed view, or um, like some of the Reformers, like John Calvin as an example, he did not believe at all that it was the literal body and blood of Jesus. He did not even believe what Luther believed. He actually believed more so what like we believe and, and Baptists and um, Methodists believe. And it is that they are just elements, okay? However, there are verses in the Bible particularly Paul says, do not take communion in an unworthy manner. Because some of you do, some of you have fallen asleep. And we know through exegesis and through studying the Bible that that is a reference to some of you have died. So while we are 100% not saying that the elements are literally the body and blood of Jesus, what we do, what we do believe is that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances that Jesus himself gave us. Think about this, not as something that we do, okay? Stick with me, but are actually gifts. Have we ever thought about baptism? Have we ever thought about the Lord's Supper as a gift and not just something that we do? Let me give you an example. When let's say a, a son or a daughter or a boyfriend or girlfriend leaves and leaves far, far away, maybe they are traveling overseas and they leave you with their hoodie that they haven't washed, okay? And, and as much as maybe you wouldn't like that when they're living with you, when they leave, you better believe that you are going to, from time to time, as you miss them so desperately, you are going to bring up that hoodie and you're going to bury your nose in it and you're going to smell your loved one. And it's going to do this, this crazy weird thing in your mind where it literally, you, you feel like, it's like they are, they're not here, but like they are. It's so much different than just thinking about your loved one far away. There's something to putting that hoodie on and then smelling it as you go about your day and remind you of that person. In the same way, if you're going to, off to war or something and, and someone brings a picture of their, of their wife and their kids, okay? And they're, in a, they're feeling very lonely. They're feeling very desperate. They haven't seen them in months or perhaps years. So much better than just remembering them. You bring it out and you see it and you weep over it. Your tears fall on the picture because seeing the detail of their face, your wife that, you, that you've seen for years and years and years just brings all the emotions, everything right back to it. Jesus so desperately wanted our faith to be solid. He so desperately wanted us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Listen, after they still didn't believe, 
even, even after Jesus said, touch my hands, I mean, literally touch my feet to prove to yourself, they still didn't believe. And Jesus didn't have to, but he still went even further to greater lengths to convince them that he is literally bodily resurrected. I mean, that's how much he cares about us, making us know for certain that he is alive and well, seated on the right hand of God, and that he is very, really present with us through the word, by his spirit, and this beautiful token, this beautiful gift that we ought to partake in as believers only, obviously, to remember him, to intimately commune in. And so just, I want to leave you with this thought. Think about those two disciples. When Jesus did ascend into heaven, and maybe those doubts started coming in again, but Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Think about how beautiful it would have been specifically for those two disciples to when they took communion, the weeks and the months and the years ahead of them after Jesus ascended, they would have thought about the time that Jesus broke bread for them. Those two weren't part of the original 12. Jesus broke bread for those two and revealed himself physically to them. And so in the same way that the disciples can look back at that time and that their faith could be literally nourished, their faith could be strengthened, we have been given the exact same thing, plus the Word and the Holy Spirit. And it's beautiful. And so, um, so right now, um, I'm going to, we're going to play um, this song. And this song is called Christ the True and Better, like I mentioned. And it is about Christ in the Old Testament. Just beautiful, beautiful song. We're going to listen to that, meditate on that, meditate on the first part of our time together, which was seeing Christ in all the scriptures. And then uh, we will go ahead and partake of communion together. <laughs> That's such a good song. So good. Um, okay, so as we prepare for communion, is there anybody who does not have communion? Okay, nice. Um, so just to kind of prepare our hearts a little bit, um, one, one thing I just want to mention is that this, this idea of, of his sovereignty and his initiating, okay, it's so important that we realize that even if we don't feel like we are doing well with the Lord or if we analyze our relationship with him and man, I'm not praying enough or I'm not praying as much as I used to, I'm not reading the Bible. Take that as conviction from the Holy Spirit and fake it till you make it, okay? All right? But don't allow, don't allow those thoughts to sink deep and allow you to question your salvation. 
Do you want to know who knew before you even walked in the door on this Sunday or last Sunday or two years ago or whenever, and you walked in the door and you just, you just, you were like doubting a lot. You're like, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I don't even really know if all this Bible stuff is even true. Like, did he seriously actually rise from the dead? That seems kind of crazy. Before you ever had a thought like that, before you ever walked in the door and felt that way, he knew that you would be in that place. He literally created us to be needy. He created us to need him. So it is no wonder that at times in our life, it is to be expected that we will go through seasons in life, whether they be short or long, that we will have doubts, and this is the glory of Jesus, is that he is the initiator. And so when we partake of communion, we remember that he first loved us. We remember that he revealed himself to us when he wanted and how he wanted. And when the enemy or anyone or anything, most of the time it's just yourself, throw these doubts at yourselves, you claim the blood of Jesus. You remember to when you were baptized and you say, I am a baptized Christian. I am a partaker of the blood of Christ which washes me and cleanses me from all unrighteousness. This is what we do. Jesus said, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back. And Philippians tells us that he, he who has begun a good work in you, who is going to complete it? He will bring it to completion. Amen. And so as we take communion, no matter how you feel, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you believe that he rose from the dead and you've confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord, take this communion in joy, even if you don't feel like it. <laughs> because he has already done the work that we can never do for ourselves. And that is a fact. Like, that is... That is actually in our past. That's how beautiful of a fact that is. That has actually already happened. So we don't even have to like look forward to that like some of these other people did. That was already taken care of at the cross on Calvary once and for all when he said, it is finished. And so, Father, I just want to thank you so much for the promises of your word. Thank you so much that we can rely upon the word of God to nourish our faith. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you so much, Lord, for your grace. We thank you for loving us first. So on, so this is Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 11. So we can... Paul says, for I received from the Lord that which, oh, beautiful. He says, for I received them from the Lord. 
He actually wasn't even part of the 12, right? Paul wasn't. Yet he says, I received. It's not something I do. It's not something that I do for him, but this is a gift from him. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, and really quick, hold on. Notice here, it doesn't say he took it, he, uh, he blessed it, he broke it and gave it. That's not the story of Paul. You read this in the Gospels when Jesus, he took it, he blessed it, he broke it and gave it. So don't, don't read this and think, oh, what was he talking about before? Go back to the Gospels and you'll see that. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And verse 26 says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Father, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace. Lord, we receive in faith this token, this gift that you've given to us, which symbolizes the actual body, the actual blood of your son Jesus, which was shed and broken at Calvary, Lord. We look back to the day that death lost its sting. We look back at the day when you said, it is finished. And we look back at the third day the day that you rose victorious over sin and death. The day in which you emerged from the grave and revealed yourself to those who you loved most, those that you laid down your life for. And you are so gracious in that you have allowed us not just the 12, to partake in the Lord's Supper. You have invited all of us to that table. You are so good. You are so gracious. Father, we thank you and we love you. And we ask that you would keep us, Lord. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. 
Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.